I'm Mariah M. and this is the Black Future Manifesto. Welcome back, everyone. It's been a minute, hasn't it? We haven't hit y'all one of these episodes since March. It's been a whole ass season. It is now the fall. We thought we hit you with a nice little casual conversation to have over your holiday dinner table about Black liberation and how your family members show up in that case. And for that conversation, we have Miss Dina Hayes-Green on this episode. Dina Hayes-Green is the current managing director of the Racial Equity Institute, as well as one of the co-founders. Check that. She also sits on the Guilford County School Board, was re-elected multiple times, and is now the current chair of the school board. We always talk with our guests about how they enter into this work, and we learn about Dina's rendering in a military household and how that shaped her perspective and how she's also chosen to tackle social justice and enact social change within systems that already exist. We talk about what lit the fire for her in terms of becoming a, a community organizer, which might have something to do with a wet t-shirt contest. You're going to have to listen to get that one but also talk about the importance of training and how training is intrinsic to organizing. We talk a bit about language and the importance of historical context when considering the institutions that still exist today, you know, how we use clarifiers like black owned businesses, but not historically white institutions. Something to think about. We also talk about white fragility and black trauma and how historically black folks have been socialized to move for the sake of the comfort of white folks and how that cannot be the case if black liberation is our end goal. I wanted to thank Dina for opening up her home to Mike and I in Greensboro for this interview. And without any further ado, here's our interview with Ms. Dina Hayes Green. Take a listen. Welcome listeners. We have a lovely guest on the episode today. Micah, introduce our guest. Yes, so Dina Hayes-Green is an amazing trainer, facilitator, leader, organizational change expert, um, and somebody who uh, is one of the co-founders and the managing director of the Racial Equity Institute. Um, They do a variety of different trainings, but their signature training is really focused on helping folks understand and make visible to them the way that race shows up in our society and both the historical and present day context for that. And so given that we are committed and concerned about creating a future for all black people and the way that race and racism impact um, our communities, we wanted to just have a conversation around Dina and her work and how it connects. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for thinking of me. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Yes, wonderful. So Dina, tell me about you. Like, who are you? Like, what parts of your identity are non-negotiable at this point and how you show up in the world? Well, I'm a black woman, wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend, and I I think my primary identity is as a black person and I'm a community organizer and I use my community organizing skills and training and mentoring and coaching that I've received, nurturing from other community activists, community organizers, and transfer that, translate that inside of major systems. And the one that I'm present in is in education as an elected official. I'm chair of the school board here in Greensboro and Guilford County. Wonderful. So you're, you're here doing this work now. What was, what was your life like growing up that you feel like informed how you move now about in the world? 
I, my father was in the military, and so we were an army family, very traditional, moved around a lot, and received mixed messages from that experience. One message mm-hmm. is that we're all the same and um, you know, treat everybody equal and living in very diverse communities and living in very remote communities where there was a lot of reliance on relationships and, you know, just religious denominations and had all of those diverse experiences. And then the other one was having an experience as a black child in those different places and and that being a very different experience. And so trying to figure out and navigate between the two of those and knowing that they were two identities that, you know, we, we experienced, me and my siblings experienced a lot. And it wasn't until I came to North Carolina that I think I was really confronted with my racial identity. Mm. And, and that was interesting because there seemed to be a request to choose. There was a pull to choose. There were white girls at school that invited me in to be part of a, a popular clique. And then there were black girls that were, you know, strong and vocal and really present. And so I was trying to figure out what to do about that. And so I think I learned some skills about how to how to skate in between those two for a while, but it, it was very evident, obvious, and I think really conscious that that was the clearest that those two identities coexisted before. And what was the impact like on you? How did it happen to, I think, I think most black kids that are navigating those environments mm-hmm. have to do that work to be able to live in two worlds, like, or they choose to live in just one or the other, right? And, and, and what was the kind of like impact of that on you and your development? And what are the things that you learned? And maybe what are some of the challenges of having to do that switching? I think there are a lot of things that emerged. One of them was uh, the internalized racial oppression, the issues around colorism, the issues around the the identity issues, the Oreo being the black girl on the outside and the uh, the white acting girl on the inside and trying to figure out because I didn't want to be that because I really did relate to black women, even though I'd never been in a very strong, heavily populated black community because we either lived on an army base or we lived in a very remote area that was not um, densely populated. And so um, there was um, there was an unspoken connection to black women, particularly in high school. And we live in a predominantly white neighborhood. Mm. And so how to um, how to figure out where I belonged in that it took a while. So I do remember having some racial identity issues around that and was really glad that the sort of strong black woman identity emerged and started falling in love with being black after some exposure to books and watching TV, watching the news, watching certain documentaries and that really resonating with me. You know, they say when you hear the truth, uh, it resonates with you. And so that really spoke to me. And that caused some problems because the my relationships with white girls was not a relationship that was inclusive of my racial identity. It was almost mm-hmm. as though growing up that you're not like them or mm-hmm. you're different. And that is a very seductive invitation when you're a teenager mm-hmm. to try to figure that out. You know, somebody's trying to make you unique and special. And part of that is really denying who you are and separating you from your collective. And, you know, you have to be quick on your feet <laughs> not to not to be pulled in by that. So that was a that was a real challenge. Um, and, you know, your parents do the best they can wanting you to have a different experience than they had growing up, being born in the 30s and 40s and living in rural North Carolina and small towns and dealing with over explicit, you know, violent racial 
experiences and just wanting the world to be really different from you. So part of that means, you know, shielding you, um, giving you a different filter and lens. Yeah, I think about my own experience growing up and growing up in white spaces a lot and parents who, you know, encouraged me to read Malcolm X and took me to black history stuff and but also put me in this white environment yes. that was really hard. And, and I think for those same reasons. Yes. And it's a lot because I think, you know, folks of earlier generation didn't have the language to describe. And I think that's one of the really important and powerful things that you all do is give folks the language and the frameworks to understand what's happening around them. But I'm just curious about your own journey in terms of how you developed some of that analysis. What was kind of like that? When did you begin to start putting pieces together in terms of understanding how race worked in this country? It was really bizarre. It was as a, in my early 20s. And there was just something that I noticed about injustice. There was something I was interested in. I would hear Al Sharpton or see Jesse Jackson or some black leader being interviewed on C-SPAN or on the news and listening to what they said and their, their analysis, their explanations about what was happening was so profound. And um, so how that played in my little world, I remember going to a nightclub and they had a, a, a contest. It was, I don't know if it was a wet t-shirt contest or a pageant. <laughs> And the black girl clearly won. Right. I mean, she did. Right. And, the crowd, and, and, yeah. Yes. And so we picketed this nightclub. I mean, you know, that it's hardly, you know, social justice, but, you know, because it's, it's um, you know, misogynistic and, mm-hmm. and it's sexist and all that stuff. But the black girl won. Clearly. So, yeah. you yeah. know, we're in our early 20s picketing this nightclub on High Point Road. Daddios, that was a nightclub on High Point Road. <laughs> And so little stuff like that. I didn't have I didn't have a strong community to really belong to because my parents were, you know, just hardworking parents that, you know, did average family things that we weren't involved in uh, civic or social organizations around race or justice or those kind of things. We were around church. We were around, you know, going to see museums and the the science center and those types of things. And so I didn't have a a, a social justice community to belong to. And so they played out really, really interesting for me. And I had a similar experience to you, Micah, in the sense where my parents gave me exposure to our history and to people who were important and people who I should learn about and put put us in an all-white community and a predominantly white school. So they were mixed messages that we were getting. And without the contextual explanation about why we moved here, you know, it's a, mm. a safer neighborhood, their home values are higher, the school is better, and not because it's white. It's because of the exclusions and the, you know, racist policies and practice in the past that didn't allow, you know, strong, independent, safe black communities to be available. So without that information, we just, you just you make meaning of things. Yeah, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, raised in, raised in this environment where you're getting these, like you said, two conflicting ideologies of like how the world works. So we have, we have daddios and like the, the, the baby activist came out, the baby mm-hmm. organizer came out. Was there anything you dealt with directly in terms of that, you know, personally affected you and you're just like, I feel like I need to mobilize others and maybe I have the tools to also do that. Was there anything? I enrolled at Guilford College as an adult student in the early 90s. And I remember there was an incident at Guilford College. It was the white student that said she was assaulted and someone scrawled some racist comment on her. 
And it was a big scandal at the college. And there were a lot of things that were going on at Guilford College. And it was a very liberal, open. There was a lot of student activism and student organizing around there. One of our longtime activists, Irvin Brisbane, was a real leader and counted on students at Guilford College to weigh in on a lot of the issues we were having having with law enforcement back in the 90s around Mm -hmm. black men that clearly had mental health issues that were killed. Mm -hmm. We had Gil Barber, we had Daryl Howerton, and those were the things that were going on back in the in the 80s and 90s. And I remember this this incident that really brought up a lot of other racist activities and incidents on campus. And so we started organizing. I got in touch with two black leaders here. One was a city councilman, uh, Earl Jones and Skip Alston, who was on the county commissioners. And Skip was head of the North Carolina State NAACP at the time and brought them on campus. And that led to the Office of uh, Multiculturalism. It was the diversity office then. Mm -hmm. But that was my sort of first step into formal institutional organizing was to get that office set up on campus. And Santis Beatty became our first director of the diversity office there. So the work that you're doing now, tell us more about REI and what um, what its purpose is, who its audience is for. Like, just, you know, why are you in this position as managing director? Why are you the person also that you feel like you've you've been, you know, trained up in your life, your life's experiences to be in this role? Yeah, well, I think it's really important to say I'm not a professional facilitator or a trained facilitator. I'm a community organizer that facilitates some information. I was encouraged, harassed by uh, an elder in our community, Nettie Code, Mm -hmm. 20 years ago to go to an undoing racism workshop that was being put on by the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. I was a human relations commissioner here. She saw me as a young black leader and thought I needed to have this information. And I was a little offended. I thought I was doing some level of activism. I was, you know, again, a human relations commissioner and involved in certain things. And so Nettie insisted. And so I went, not because I thought I could learn anything, but to get her off my back. Because <laughs> she just followed you around town with a flyer. I mean, you never went anywhere. Our mayors, our city managers, our police chief, she made sure you went. Mm-hmm. So I went to a workshop and it was just transformative. I've mm-hmm. never heard someone talk about race that way. It reminds me of this scene in Malcolm X where that young man <laughs> is listening to him and just wants to faint. And so mm-hmm. the, the information, I had heard bits and pieces of it. I was an African-American studies major, so I'd heard some history, but it was put together in a way that was just so profound. And it was, um, it provided such clarity and it just, you know, it just pierced my heart to hear that and... It just lit a fire. And so I wanted those workshops to happen. I said, when's your next workshop? And they said, well, whenever you organize it. Mm. So they don't organize their own workshops. And so I said, well, how do I do that? And they told me and I would get people together and find the funding and get the venue and get food and get people to pick the trainers up. And we just started having trainings and I would get the school system and the police department and the Department of Social Services and social workers and students and people to come to the workshops. Mm -hmm. And after a year or two, the People's Institute invited me to become a trainer. And I wasn't looking for that. I I just love being in the room where this was being talked about. I was always amazed and awed at the facilitators and the trainers, but they were community organizers too. But I would hear people ask a question and I thought, how are you going to answer that? And they would. And it was just, it was so amazing. So I just wanted to just stay plugged into that. So after a year or two, they asked me to come on and become a trainer and they just mentored and coached and critiqued and corrected and guided and 
modeled for me, you know, what it is to do this work. And so I was a trainer with the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond for a number of years, for about 10 years. And then there were some changes to the curriculum that I thought would be effective with the people that I was working with, you know, as elected officials being inside these complex hierarchical systems. And the People's Institute has a solid community-driven, community-influenced and designed curriculum, and we didn't want to tamper with that. And with their partnership, we launched the Racial Equity Institute then to tweak the curriculum and to infuse some institutional analysis that, and some parts of the concepts that we thought would be digestible and understood inside of our systems. And so we, we launched the Racial Equity Institute, Institute in 2008 with two people, me and Suzanne Plissick. And then Matthew Bell joined us, and then now we have about 23 organizers that train. So you talk about being an organizer and not a trainer, and I, I like that distinction because I, like I like to define my own labels as well. But why is training such a powerful tool for organizing, and, and what is the impact that you see it ha- happen in communities, not just some of the individual level, right, for folks, but also at the collective level? Well, I think that the training is a tool to organize. I mean, what are we organizing around and why are we organizing? So the training gives us the information to let us know why we're doing what we do. And it's a tool to do that. It's a tool to pull people together, to create that base, to build that capacity, to operate with a shared understanding, to be able to come up with the collective approaches to doing something about it. Because I think one of the dilemmas I face in organizing the African-American community, whether you're Urban League, NAACP, Delta, AKA Omega, um, you know, no matter what organ, Black Child Development, no matter what organization you belong to, everybody was moving in a different direction and we weren't very clear about race. We were clear about discrimination and oppression and mm-hmm. history, but not, not sounding um, collective when we were talking about race. And the workshop is a way to get us on the same page and to pull all of our energy at least into being on the same page with that. So so the, the training is really important to give us the education and the information that we need to, to get us all together. The work is organizing. When, when we organize, when we, how do we convey and deliver this information to people in ways that reaches them and resonates with them? That's where we practice the the analysis. So we hear the information and then we use that so that the the work is not just getting up. We're not professional trainers. It's not just something that we do. It's a resource and a tool to come back home. And that's where we practice that. Yeah. I also want to uplift how earlier you were speaking about when you were working for Peoples, you you were an event planner. But that's part of organizing. Like organizing just look like, you know, protesting in the street throwing rocks and, you know, making sure daddy O's give like the black girl her just due. <laughs> it's, it's, it's getting people to the table. Like that's definitely part of it. I just wanted to like uplift that, to dispel that again. Organizing has to look like something when really it's about bringing people together for like a shared purpose. And yeah, how you um, talked about people moving in different directions and or people feeling like everything has to be their own thing or of people pretty much having the same idea about something, but it's it's three three entities working towards the same thing, but not working together for like the same thing. 
yeah, that just came to me. I'm not sure why it came to me exactly, but yeah, I feel like we don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's just making sure we all like rolling in the same direction. I watched a documentary called Bastards of the Party. Yeah. And it was about, you know, the the, you know, emergence of gangs in South Central Los Angeles. And I remember in the documentary, someone was talking about Bunchy Carter, you know, just a real leader in the Black Panther Party. But they were talking about being at a rent party. And so mm-hmm. everybody's dancing and, and, and socializing. And Bunchy Carter would stop the music, hop on the table, just throw out some history, some education. And, and people would just, you know, be, you know, their world would be rocked. And then they'd go back to dancing and socializing. And then they said the next day they'd have 10 people in line to join the Panther organization. Mm. And so we have to use our, you know, activities and our meetings and our gatherings to be able to throw out that information in ways that really speaks to people because we have we have been so moved by the way that people explain what's happened to us because we know something's going on but no one said why and then it relieves us it liberates us from saying oh it's because we haven't gotten our stuff together or that we haven't made certain things a priority. So it's not an excuse, but it's an explanation about what's happened. And um, I think that moves us. What are some of the, so I think about, I mean, the work that you all do, I think there's some, there's some information that you all are delivering and that's really valuable for folks. But I think there's also just like some principles around, I think about the, the People of Color Caucus and the White Caucus and just some ways that you all approach this work. So can you talk about some of the underlying principles in terms of, the values that inform how you all approach this work. Well, they're the and those principles we say are in effect long after the workshop. We've evolved our expectations how we open up the workshop by saying we've got to have something, some principles to help to help us have this conversation that we're not practiced in having. What we've included now are Brian Stevenson's recommendations around getting proximate to the problem. And we're just so far away from this that we haven't studied race, that we haven't taught, learned about it, we haven't learned about it together. I and mean, we're looking at this from a distance. And so he says, get proximate to it. He says, we have to change the narrative. What's our story? What's our explanation? You know, how do we begin to tell people about what's going on? He says, we have to be willing to be uncomfortable. <clears throat> we say that in the workshop, that if you're, if you're risk averse or if your solutions so solutions oriented that you bypass the process, this experience can be very frustrating or and you're likely to burn out. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be willing to sit with the discomfort of all that. And that he also says to maintain hope, but what we add to that is maintaining hope in the face of the brutal facts. That that we're very hopeful, but that hopeful is not outside of confronting, you know, um, the this information. And it is brutal. You know, it's painful, it is frustrating, it's angering. And and we, we talk about you know, how we all have to stay in this. This, you know, if this isn't a two-day workshop. This is an invitation to be part of a process. And then after we've had this shared experience, people that want to stay together to unpack that, to debrief, to say, what does this mean to me in my life? How does this show up? How is racism, how is whiteness operable in the world? Mm. And we invite people to join um, our local organization called GERA in Greensboro, it's the Guilford Anti-Racist Alliance and the Raleigh-Durham, Chapel Hill, Hillsborough, Orange County, Chatham area. It's the OR Alliance, Organizing Against Racism Alliance. And we invite people there to come and let's process what we just went through and let's just talk about what that means. We separate. We have a people of color caucus where people of color get together and we have a white caucus. And that is, is that we don't have shared language. We have anxieties and apprehension. We're afraid of saying the wrong thing. 
we're, we're afraid of being misunderstood. We also have some, some behaviors like protectionism. You know, black people have learned throughout history that white people's comfort is our priority because when white people have been uncomfortable, black people have died. And so how does that show up in a very contemporary way when we feel like we've been very provocative or that, that white people are hypersensitive or fragile, as Robin DiAngelo talks about white fragility. Black people take that among themselves to fix that, to, to, to tend to that. Yeah, soothe. So, yeah, so here right. we are having to tend to our own trauma, mm-hmm. and then we have to tend to that too. So we um, offer an opportunity for white people to learn to tend to each other mm-hmm. and to be able to have conversations that they might not have in mixed company, mm-hmm. and for black people to talk about how we just experienced not only the workshop and the information, but how we begin to heal from and address and identify our own manifestations of internalized racial inferiority. Mm-hmm. You know, that protectionism, that distancing, that colorism, all of those things. And we need to do that in a, in a space that is private and, and can be uninterrupted. Yeah. I feel like um, we are in a wave of this being unapologetically ourselves, specifically for Black people and how... I mean, for me, being unapologetically black is a lack of like making yourself smaller for the sake of like white comfort or and just, you know, not not doing things like code switching for the sake of somebody else's comfort. Like you're either going to take me as it is or you're going to be uncomfortable. Like that's that's what it should be. And I'm also curious to like what I'm honestly not sure really how that came about. I don't know if it was like a, a shift in. Our, our culture in terms of like natural hair being more uplifted. I don't know if it's been like people in the forefront in terms of like social media slash just entertainment where black women are getting more just exposure and more exposure as themselves authentically. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super glad to hear that there's a space for there's still like there's this self-love, but also where's the healing going to come into play as well? And we have an opportunity to meet jointly and that we do that for accountability mm. because it can be problematic if white people are just meeting by themselves. <laughs> yeah. And so we have an agreement that uh, we check in and the people that have been a part of the Guilford Anti-Racist Alliance White Caucus check in with us and say, hey, this is what we are thinking about. We'd like to execute this. We just want to get your input you know, about how we do this. Even people who've been really moved by anti-racist work can, you know, just go out there on their own and do a lot of damage and harm. Mm-hmm. You know, want to help, you know, just, you know, and then when you become the zeal of the newly reformed, you yeah. know, the conscious person that want to, it's like, oh my God, can you believe it's this bad? And we're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we can. And, uh, you know, we, we've got to do something and can go out there and really create, you know, some damage and some harm. And so we're not reckless about this. You know, we're very intentional and an accountable relationship with each other. Real quick, did you all see the, the white woman who made like a whites only yoga group? Because like on the people meet or whatever it was she kept seeing poc only space or like trans and gnc only space she's like well this is exclusive and and why why can't i come and and didn't understand how creating a white only mm-hmm. space was racist in itself and literally came out like i'm not racist i'm like i'm mm-hmm. not a bigot i just want a space for me and it's just like oh honey 
we have so much learning to do mm-hmm. <laughs> about how, you know, your that thought is backwards, even though literally your intentions weren't malicious. We talk about a concept in the workshop called marketness. And marketness is the concept that speaks to the relationship between things that are marked and unmarked in our society. And it, it also says that things that are unmarked are the dominant, default, normal condition and status of things. Mm-hmm. So when I remember, I was listening to your podcast with Rhonda Taylor Bullock, and I remember her talking about, you know, historically black colleges and universities. And if you look up on Wikipedia, or if you look up the, in the College Board book of colleges and universities, that you don't see whiteness identified. Mm-hmm. So even though... The University of Florida was a historically white college and university that had practices and policies that would not admit black students. It's still not identified racially. Neither is the American Bar Association. Neither is the American Medical Association. Neither is the um, Rotary Club and the historically white, you know, the uh, white neighborhoods that had restrictive covenants and the white churches that wouldn't let you in. Or even now the business that's locally owned. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. white owned. I say white owned. Right. Most folks to say locally owned. Mm-hmm. I've been yeah. looking up construction companies. Yeah. And, you know, you look up, you know, the top five black construction companies. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the largest uh, American owned construction companies. And so because white has been so unmarked mm-hmm. and white people see a black student union instead of a historically white college and university, they, you know, it, it's, it's, it seems easy to to understand why they feel like they haven't gotten anything because of the color of their skin mm-hmm. even though it's 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 blatant even though we had whites only i mean we're right here in this building that was you know a whites only neighborhood where in 1913 they were able to use the city attorney and the city ordinance to say if you're black you couldn't live here mm-hmm. black people didn't have any social and institutional or legal power or authority to keep white people out of anything mm-hmm. and so if the if all of those societies and associations and churches and neighborhoods and schools aren't marked currently then it does feel like other people are getting things that white people didn't get because of the color of their skin from BET <laughs> to the, you know, to the Black Child Development Institute. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, well, I, what I hear young white people say, well, if we created our own organizations, that'd be unacceptable. And that's, that's accurate, just, though. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> but, that, but you create them all the time, right? Mm-hmm. They were legally right. created. It's, yeah. it's just as clear as day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were legally created. But yeah. the invisibility of that today, and my, my colleague Suzanne Plissick says, when we make that invisible, racism thrives. Mm-hmm. And so we need to mark that. We need to mark Cone Hospital as a historically white hospital that had to be sued in 1962 because they wouldn't accept black patients. Mm-hmm. We have to name Irving Park as a historically white neighborhood that had racially restrictive covenants that wouldn't let. We need to name Gillespie Park Golf Course as the historically white golf course that wouldn't let Dr. Simpkins that arrested a black dentist and other black golfers for trying to play there in the 1950s. We need to say that First Presbyterian is a historically white church and that needs to be marked, it needs to be lifted up, it needs to be talked about. People in those neighborhoods and churches and schools and hospitals need to be informed about the history so that they're able to interpret what what they what the marking or the identifying of other organizations means. Yeah. The one one quote that came to my mind, I don't know who said that, which I need I need to find out who said it. But it was just that, it was like, white people, we're not saying your life 
wasn't hard. You're saying your life wasn't hard because you're white. white. Like that's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the big marker. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean it doesn't mean you didn't go through hardship, but mm-hmm. your hardship was not based on your lack of melanin. Mm-hmm. And that being white might have been a protective factor mm-hmm. in the face of hardship and struggle. That, you know, as we work with poor white people in homeless shelters or that are receiving services like from food pantries and those kinds of agencies and organizations, that if you're white and sitting on a park bench, you're more likely to be able to stay there an hour longer mm-hmm. or two hours longer. That you can go in the Hampton or Fairfield Inn bathroom and clean up and go get the continental breakfast and go unnoticed maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, that you get more money panhandling, you know, when you're out there on the corner trying to, you know, scrape up some money. Mm-hmm. And so even if you're out, you live under a bridge, you know, no one, like you said, no one is saying that life isn't difficult and hard and you're not struggling. But that was the deal that was made with poor white people a long time ago. You know, you got a toilet and a water fountain in the 60s for it. Today, you get the park bench and the continental breakfast at the local hotel. Mm -hmm. And you're still living outdoors or under a bridge or not able to feed your family or dying of diseases of poverty. And it was a pretty brilliant strategy to get white people into poor white people into this all-class collaboration called white. Right. Yeah. So I want to shift gears just a little bit to, to think about something that you said earlier around how important sort of a racial equity framework can be to black organizations mm-hmm. in terms of coming together around those issues. I think when I look at some of our black organizations right now, one of the things that we're confronting is the intersection between how racism and patriarchy impact our communities and really a lack of ability to be able to have that conversation productively and like one side of the argument, you know, saying it's about gender and it's about sort of gender-based violence and it's about all the things that we know are part of patriarchy and then another side saying, you know, we really got to focus on race first, right? And so I'm just wondering about how you you think, as a black woman who's lived that intersection your entire life mm-hmm. and experienced both of those systems, how do you make sense of those conversations and how they come together? Yeah, I think, you know, that there are a lot of complications that we have to be, we have to be patient with each other and we have to enter the partnerships very lovingly. And I think when we come in and uh, we have our stake in the ground that we've already defeated our purpose around that, how do we learn first? I think we have too much dialogue without education. Mm-hmm. I think there's some confusion around. There are all of these new, interesting, powerful, and inflammatory expressions and descriptions of things that older people, not necessarily our elders, but older people like me, how do we begin to learn the language and to understand what that means? And I think because people's experiences are so urgent and critical, that we haven't taken the time to do that. And so we just, we we come in and we make demands on what should be the priority. I mean, white women did this with during the suffrage movement, you know, as the, you know, black suffrage and white women's suffrage movements were trying to, you know, had some alliances, you know, with Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells, that, you know, white women wanted women's suffrage to, you know, be pushed to the front of the agenda. And when that didn't happen, you know, they turned their backs on the black suffrage and white abolitionists and then got in bed with white supremacists and said, you know, white supremacy will be strengthened by white women getting the right to vote. So I think we weaken our our movement when we come in with those demands first without saying that we're going to learn what is this. Let's just put it in front of us and talk about what it is and what it means and where it came from. And then we have to be patient. You know, I, I know people want to, you know, 
have things move so quickly, but we have to be patient with each other because we're so hardwired and oriented around some things. We have cultures that have been around for so long. They're really subcultures. <laughs> there are subcultures of you know patriarchy. There are subcultures of, of black culture that have been around for so long that we feel like that's who we are, and it's not. So, so I think we have to come in with a willingness to, uh, we've just, I think our, you know, just what we experience and encounter every day keeps us from being able to give each other some grace and mercy around some of the things that are going on. I feel like when the biggest gap for me in terms of like addressing patriarchy and like ways I didn't realize it manifested was something like respectability politics Mm -hmm. and how that and also like professionalism right and so things like there's a there's a a movement now which is like my black hair is professional and how the reason why black hair is a professional is because black people weren't allowed to, to enter professions that were you know only reserved for white people so of course the way I look is not professional because you didn't have people that look the way I look. Mm-hmm. In terms of respectability politics, it's that policing happens within the black community by black women, by you know, by people that are not men, and getting getting folks to realize that you don't have to be a, a man to be committing like misogynistic tendencies and have misogynistic views, and also like adopt like toxic toxic just tactics of that operate in patriarchy yeah i talked to one of our queer leaders of color organizers and uh, because there was just so much calling out and shutting down that was going on that we just couldn't get through a meeting Hmm. and you know we were talking about what would it be like if we had you know just a group of people that were willing and interested to uh, struggle with each other how do we come together and can you can you put together, you know, a curriculum? Can you put together something that educates people on pronouns? Mm-hmm. Can you get together? Can can we at least get that information first before you come to a meeting and someone, you know, sort of misgender someone and then it's, you know, then we're all going down that road because, you know, we don't know. Can we talk about the manifestations of internalized racial inferiority and talk to each other about how they subtly show up and how they overtly show up? But I think that our division, our you know being spread so thin has robbed us of the patience that we need again with each other to to learn what that means, you know, how our churches function and operate and why. Mm. I mean, why our family dynamics are the way they are, why the black community, you know, the arrangement is so consistent across communities. If we don't, you know, get together and and learn together first and and develop some language so that we can talk to each other more effectively, you don't even have to accept or buy, you know, the people's identities. You know, we can't you this this if if people aren't going to give that up, what are we going to what are we going to do to be in relationship with each other, healthy, respectful, loving, supportive relationships with each other while we're struggling with that? So I just think we, we've got to make that commitment to each other again. I think in the 60s, it was easy to see we weren't the problem. You know, what the problem was so overt, it was in your face. It was the, you know, whites only lunch counter and what you could and couldn't do. And because it's the way that racism shows up today is, you know, institutional and structural and embedded, you know, it's in the groundwater, as we say in the workshop, that we don't have that collective clarity that that 
is becomes a focus. And so then we, we, we turn inward, you know, these are distress patterns that I think we play out on each other. And, and, you know, there's some people who are so hip with the, all of the terminology and what it means, and they can just, you know, they can just roll it out and it catches people off guard. And I have been really uh, heartbroken, I think, by the millennial, black millennial, black elder, you know, uh, confrontations that were peaked maybe a year and a half ago, I think have settled down a little bit, but I don't think that that we examined what happened and why those what those things happened, the clashes between the Black Lives Matter and the older, you know, sort of black groups and mm-hmm. how black some black older people were being co-opted, how some younger black people were, you know, were being invited to be a part of that. And so I, I do think we need to spend some time together learning and understanding what this means and why it's here. So I, I just, one of the things that we like to, to get folks to think about is just what is the kind of future that we're building towards, right? And so I, I just think about, I think about the impact of you all's work and, and I've just seen it, I think we've seen it for ourselves in Durham in terms of when you give a critical mass of people common language and understanding and knowledge to talk about something, it really changes the conversation some. But how are you, what do you think about when you think about your children and your grandchildren and, and the world that you want to create um, for them? What, what do you imagine black people in your imagined future look like and feel like and and yeah what what does that look like and feel like yeah it looks like all of if you've been to a a store where there's a lot of black art you've been to a you know um, a quilting show and you've seen these amazing pictures from black artists i want it to look like that i want it to look like the grandma doing the hair i want it to look like the you know black people after church or um after um faith experience. I want it to look like, you know, how we gather and, you know, nourish ourselves with each other. My husband and I moved in the neighborhood that we live in now because we want to build on what was done before. We were so inspired by the stories around how Collier Heights in Atlanta was built, you know, Ransom Place and Martindale Brightwood in Indianapolis or Cistrunk in Fort Lauderdale or Haytai in Durham or Wilmington, North Carolina. And it was just like in the face of enormous adversity, we built communities where people survived and thrived. I have a book called Separate But Equal. And uh, it's a book about, you know, bands and parties and and art and photography and weddings. And I just want to live. I want my children to have an opportunity to experience black life like that. And, you know, I, I, I say in the workshop and I believe in my heart that it's important to do this work in a multiracial way. And at the same time, I believe it's important for black people not to put all their eggs in that basket and for us to have a plan about our own freedom and liberation. Mm -hmm. And living here on this block, it's just like it's we can cut ourselves off from all of that, you know, with uh, my best friend, my mother-in-law, my children and my best friend's children and grandchildren living here that we really do borrow some cream cheese or a cup of sugar. We really do say, can you come down here and help me fix the computer? We really do say, I got a package on my doorstep. Will you go get it? We really do say, it's Sunday, you know, let's all eat together. And and our children grew up here seeing that and have a love for our community and have a love for our, our experience and our history. And I am so blessed that they have a sense of who they are as black children and see themselves in the world and in such a a larger picture of who black people are, that I think, you know, when you have 
that kind of groundedness, then you don't absorb all of the stuff that you confront every day, that it's not personal. You know, that it, you, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but that it's not about you. And so, so I just, I envision all, I envision us living out all of the scenes that, you know, that we create in our minds and then express in our, in our skills and crafts. What do you see, Micah, for this, this black imagined future? Yeah, I mean, I, I do, I do see a world in which all black kids like believe in themselves and and believe in their blackness and 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 that and are exposed to and, and immersed in and covered in all the richness of that for mm-hmm. sure what about you yeah for me it's like to exist without feeling like i'm a spectacle or like i'm performative everything is is natural in that way i don't know i feel like i'm i feel like blackness is always being surveilled whether it be to co-op because you're going to, whether it just be to co-op and, you know, for, for culture vultures to do just that, or it's just, I'm, I'm, I'm existing as a performance. I don't know. I like to, I'd like to be in spaces where I don't feel like I'm like being surveilled and not even in like a malicious way, but like just because folks are conditioned for, you know, either black people to be the life of the party or like it's, you know, seasoning, yeah, or a threat, yeah, it can be, it can be, both of those are still hella, you know, um, evasive, strips me of my humanity, so a place where I feel like, like, blackness and humanness is, is, is well in tune with each other. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, we get a little bit of that, we can walk up the street and eat at Dame's Chicken and Waffles, I mean, we can have a whole weekend experience where it's just, you know, we're just immersed in seeing us and doing our thing, and, and that's just very life-giving. Yeah. So we sometimes we ask folks to like, what is one thing you want to leave folks with? But I I, I was going to ask flip it a little bit on, for you and ask you, other than going attending an, an REI training, which I highly recommend, and there's actually on your website you can find a list of racialequityinstitute.org, mm-hmm. right? Racialequityinstitute.org. Yes. You can get a list of sort of upcoming trainings. Mm-hmm. There's probably one in your area because y'all are everywhere. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you can also go to oralliance.org. Uh, and, and they have all the Raleigh Durham Chapel Hill, you know, most of that region. Awesome. Stuff. Yeah. Other than that, is there something else? What is one thing that you would recommend that folks would do hmm. to, to to around sort of advancing Black folks? I think join something. Be a part of an effort where we're having, I think, an elevated conversation on race. Our caucus here that um, Monica, my best friend, uh, who's also a trainer and organizer, she and I chair the People of Color Caucus. And we say that, you know, anti-racism, racial equity, dismantling racism, it's not a workshop. It's not an education. It's who you are and how you live your life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think it's about going to those things, give us additional tools, but stay plugged in afterwards. And, you know, that's where we really do our work. You know, they say that your marriage is where you execute your faith. You know, it's where you do all the forgiveness and all the things you say you believe and you're challenged and tested. And our organizing is where we execute the principles of anti-racism or racial equity. You know, it's just not something you hold in your head. It's not an intellectual experience. And so the organizing and being a part of a group that's staying together is where you execute the principles you say you believe in. It's a great note to end it on, I think. It is, right? yeah. Your, your principles aren't anything if they're not practiced right? Right. in a place yeah. with other folks. Yeah. yeah, and it tests you. Are you living according to your principles? 
Yeah. And where are you going to have that experience if you're not somewhere interacting and using those? Like you, you talked about it, but are you being about it? Yeah. Yeah. So our partnerships, marriages, you know, community groups, churches, where mosques, synagogues, wherever you go to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining. This was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> really enjoyed the conversation. I'm uh, looking forward to hearing more about your work and working together. So, um, yeah, continuing this conversation. Yeah, I'm just glad we made another connection in the in the chain. <laughs> another link in the chain. Yes. Wow, what an interview. Thank you again to Dina Hayes Green for inviting us into your home and being on our podcast. I learned so much. I think again, I appreciate every single guest we have on this show to be able to talk about how there's so many things that need to be done in order to achieve black liberation. And there's so many ways to plug in and so many ways that we need to consider to never neglect ourselves in the process because this is grueling work. This is grueling work, but it's necessary work. And there's always a way for somebody to be involved. There are so many paths to get to where we all want to be, which is the freedom side. More thank yous. This episode was made possible by Frontline Solutions, a Black-owned consulting firm that helps organizations on the front lines of change define their goals, execute plans, and evaluate its impact. Quite lit. Thank you to Mr. Grooveology for creating the track you hear behind the sound of my voice. He's an amazing artist and producer, obviously this track. You can follow him on Instagram at Mr. Grooveology. That's M-R-G-R-O-O-V-O-L-O-G-Y. Follow the homie. Again, thanks for tuning in. You can show your support for the podcast in the following ways. One, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, the gram at Black Future Pod. That is B-L-A-C-K-F-U-T-U-R-E-P-O-D. Follow us. Bam. Next. Two, subscribe to the podcast. We're currently on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. You get a little notification. We drop a new episode and you'll make me smile. Wow. Both of those things are so important. Three, if you're picking up what we're putting down, pick up your fingers and write us a review. Let folks know what you think about the podcast and help grow our listener base. You're amazing. Wow. Four, share us on social media. Subscribe. Already told you that, but just one more time, right? And don't forget to tag us when you do. Handle one more time at B-L-A-C-K-F-U-T-U-R-E-P-O-D. All right, well, that's all I've got. So until next time, I'm your host, Mariah M, signing off. See ya.